This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 1st, 2019. No fooling on this show, but we do talk about dueling. If you don't know what that is, you better listen to find out. And if you do, then you better listen to hear about how its economics tell a tale about our world. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes. It became the dominant figure. I mean, jeweling is a verb, right? It it means the same as vaping. You know that Google hit it big when Google became a verb. We had sort of standards in place to make sure that companies did not get to such a size that they could have market power and use anti-competitive behavior. And we essentially don't... That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. There's a story in the last couple of weeks that, if you're in Australia, you've almost certainly heard. If you're not in Australia, you've almost certainly not heard. The story is about a political party called Pauline Hansen's One Nation. That's its real name. The leader of the party is called Pauline Hansen, but she's literally put her stamp on the party as well. It's not a very big party. They have no members of Australia's House of Representatives, but they do have two members out of a total of 76 of the Australian Senate. The party got about 9% of the vote in Australia when they were set up back in the late 1990s. Then they fell away into obscurity, but they've had a bit of a comeback in the last few years. It's an anti-immigrant, right-wing, populist party. It's one of those parties that feels the need to clarify that they aren't racist on a regular basis. The story is that the party's chief of staff, James Ashby, and another senior member, the leader of the party in the state of Queensland, Steve Dixon, went to Washington, D.C. and met representatives of the NRA, America's National Rifle Association. They were looking for funding for their party and were offering political favours as a result. What they didn't know was that one of their party was filming the meeting for Al Jazeera News Channel. It's a bit difficult, but I'll play you one clip. Think about it. We're sitting in Washington, D.C., the centre of the free world, mm-hmm. talking about how we might change the future of the planet. We would win potentially a balance of power if we took two seats in the lower house. And you know what? I reckon you could do that for $2 million. If you went 20, you would, you would, you would own the lower house and our house. You would have the balance of power in both houses. If one nation could get $10 million, yep. 
you pick up eight, seven, eight Senate seats. That guarantees you balance of power. I mean, that out of have the whole government on board. In case you couldn't make that out, what they were talking about there is that if they got the money they asked for from the NRA, they could win eight to ten seats in the Australian Senate, where they currently have two seats, and a bunch of seats in the Australian Lower House, where they currently have no representation. The lower of those two ambitions that James Ashby is talking about there two seats in the lower house in Australia might not seem significant out of a total of 150 members, but note that he's talking about getting the balance of power. The Australian Prime Minister is elected by the lower house, so if his or her party doesn't have a majority, they must do a deal to get over the line to get the 75 votes needed to be elected. What they're talking about is not getting anything like a majority, it's just to get into a position where they could extract concessions from a future Australian government in return for having that government implementing some of their policies. And what they're promising their potential donors in the NRA is that those policies would be something that the NRA wants. For the record, Australia has quite strict gun laws. They were introduced after a massacre in 1996 at Port Arthur, where 35 people were killed and many others injured. Later that year, the Australian government introduced a compulsory gun buyback scheme that took in more than a million firearms. There had been several smaller mass murders in the years before the Port Arthur attack, but there have been none since. Gun owners are required to be licensed, trained, and must not be a convict or have a history of mental illness. But I don't want to get into the gun debate here. What I think is important is that around the same time those meetings were taking place in Washington, D.C., the Australian government was passing laws to prevent foreign funding of their political parties. Pauline Hanson, one of the party's two senators, voted for the law. At the same time, her lieutenants were prostituting their party in the hope of stuffing their electoral war chest. I don't want to comment so much on how corrupt this is. What I'm really dismayed at is the price. Australia is a country of 25 million people. It's in the top 20 richest countries in the world. It's third in the world on the Human Development Index. And the price to take over some government policies is somewhere between 2 and $10 million. That's absurdly cheap. That's getting effective control, at least partly, of a country with an economy of one5 trillion dollars for just 10 million dollars. That ratio, in case your calculator is running out of zeros, is 150,000 to one. Now, this didn't come off. It seems like this cosy little funding arrangement didn't work out for Pauline Hansen's One Nation. But it was plausible. It could have happened. And I've no doubt that on other occasions it did happen. Think of the consequences of that. 
There are plenty of lobby groups, corporations, even private individuals who could buy the governments of whole continents at that price. That's not democracy. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have David Dayen. He's a contributing writer for The Intercept and a weekly columnist for The New Republic. He's also shortly to become the executive editor of The American Prospect, and he's the author of a book called Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. But I don't want to talk to him about any of that. Uh, I saw an article of yours, David, from a while back called How the Vaping Giant Jewel Explains Everything that's wrong with our world. Before we get to everything that's wrong with the world, what exactly is Juul? Oh, so Juul is uh, an e-cigarette company, uh, sometimes known as vaping. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really, it did not exist. And really the, the sort of whole concept of, of e-cigarettes didn't exist, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago. But now they have captured a tremendous amount of market share in the United States, particularly Juul, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, now their their revenues have increased something like, I think, 800%. I'm sorry. Their revenues have increased something like 800% just in the course of a year from mm-hmm. 2017 to 2018. And uh, what I write about in this story is that Altria, which is a legacy uh, cigarette company, uh, made a purchase of a stake in Juul. So mm-hmm. this company that was sort of a disruptor, uh, uh, attempting to uh, uh, be an alternative to uh, the, the standard cigarettes, has now uh, been purchased in part by a legacy cigarette manufacturer. Okay. So, Juul, for the three people who've been living under a rock for the past <laughs> 10 years, these e-cigarettes are the things that you see some people holding that look maybe like an outsized USB stick or something like that. And they release clouds of what looks like smoke, but doesn't generally smell like smoke. It might be steam. And for the people who don't know what's in them, this is not just flavor. There's like real nicotine in these. That's the stuff that gets you addicted to cigarettes. So they are very significantly addictive. Am I right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and, and they are, you know, uh, certainly if you ask Juul or, or e-cigarette manufacturers, they would say that this is a much safer product than cigarettes. Uh, however, the addictive qualities uh, of nicotine are still present. And it's very clear in terms of the, the, the tremendous uptake, particularly by adolescents, uh, at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, even though there's been falling cigarette use among uh, young people in the U.S., the rise of vaping has almost completely counteracted that. And mm-hmm. so now you you have almost the same levels of nicotine addiction among 12th graders that you did 20 years ago, uh, even though traditional cigarette use is way, way down. Okay, so let's get that. So 12th graders, so these would be like, people maybe 17, 18 years of age, they are, if you combine smoking and vaping, they're doing that just as much as they were smoking alone 20 years ago. 
That's right. And and almost all of that market share in terms of e-cigarettes has gone to Juul. So th- this used to be, you know, 10 years ago, the market did not exist. Yeah, and, and then we got all these shops springing up. I don't know about where, where I think you live in Los Angeles, but where yeah. I live, all of a sudden, it seemed like every vacant little space in quite marginal streets was taken up with vaping stores that would sell little bottles of liquid and sell these devices. Almost anybody with a small manufacturing plant somewhere in China was making these devices. This market has now centralized. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, as you said, they were easy to obtain uh, and they were kind of marketed towards uh, young people in terms of they were flavored, uh, mango, mint. Uh, it, it was not seen as something that was uh, particularly carcinogenic or anything like cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And so young people picked it up. But as you said, uh, this this used to be, uh, you know, used to be not a market at all. And then when it did become a market, there were dozens of competitors, and Juul entered this market just a couple years ago, and effectively uh, uh, destroyed all all the competition to the point where now it's been uh, you know partially purchased by a legacy cigarette manufacturer who is putting it right next to. Marlboro cigarettes. Yeah, when you say, uh, in, when you say a legacy, store. when you say a legacy cigarette manufacturer, that's a polite way of saying a big old tobacco company. That's correct. And I know that in most states, I think it is illegal for people under eighteen to buy cigarettes. Well, are there any legal controls on this? Well, not much. I mean, the FDA has uh, started to look at this market a little more carefully. Uh, and they, they did prevent in 2016, uh, e-cigarette sales to anyone under 18. Of course, uh, most of the sales or a, a good bit of the sales are done online. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to, uh, verify ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, some States have set that age limit up to 21. Juul then sort of voluntarily applied this, this to sales on its website, but, you know, anyone that has bought beer for somebody who's, uh, you know, underage knows that this is not a tra- da- tremendous David, David, barrier did, to did a drop of alcohol pass your lips before you turned 18? <laughs> or 21, even. Or 21, uh, even. <laughs> so uh, this, is, this is not a huge barrier to entry. I mean, Juul claims that they have this big age-matching system, uh, but there are secondary, secondary sellers of these pods Mm-hmm. Uh, on eBay, on Alibaba. So it, it's it's not really hard to traverse it. And then there's this giant black market in schools mm-hmm. uh, where where young people are, are trading these back and forth. So uh, the, the age restrictions haven't really worked. Uh, and, uh, the, the, uh, and I think that's borne out by the fact that the market share has, has jumped so high just in a year or two. I, we're talking about the market share and about how Juul absolutely conquered this market and wiped out all these small competitors. I want to come to that in a moment, but just before we get to that, the word that you used, I think very carefully there was safer. Safer doesn't mean safe. Do you know what is the level of risk or is it even known of using these products? Well, there is not. It is so new. There isn't a ton of of really good data that we have, but it has been linked 
to uh, certain kinds of uh, 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 various uh, ailments and things. Uh, it's it's uh, again, it's 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 a little bit too new to to make very sweeping statements about this. But we do know that the addictive qualities of of nicotine are certainly present. And then because you're you're inhaling this product, uh, there's questions about whether you're uh, inhaling like uh, burning plastic, essentially, what you know, the parts of the uh, the jewel uh, vape stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, there is I'm, I'm not coming up with the name right now, but there is a, a particular kind of ailment that has been uh, linked to vaping that's uh, pop, uh, popcorn lung it pop, might be there it is that's exactly what i was thinking of popcorn lung is one thing that has been found and 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 maybe there's going to be more i mean we just have don't have a ton of study here and and i think until we do it's probably more prudent just to say that this is a safer product rather than a completely safe one yeah the a, a solvent that's in this uh, e-cigarette juices diacetyl which is a chemical that causes what is called popcorn lung but what do you think of the argument and i'll move away from the safety in a moment but what do you think of the argument that this is replacing cigarettes so even if it's dangerous it's certainly less dangerous than smoking cigarettes is this on average moving people away from cigarettes towards these products these vaping products and thereby reducing risk in total well that's jules argument right Mm -hmm. i mean that that's what they say they say they've moved a million americans off of cigarettes and onto these products uh it's it's why the product was introduced and invented in the first place uh however it's not like jules entry has uh, meant that the the primary users of the product are former uh, users of cigarettes. The, the, the industry would skew far older if that was the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact is that, that, that Juul is mostly taken up by adolescents and, and it seems like uh, has been marketed to adolescents in a very direct way. If you look at some of Juul's uh, previous advertising, their social media. It was about being young and being hip and, and, and using this product. And, and, you know, if, it, if the whole point was to convert people from cigarettes to e-cigarettes, you wouldn't start with, you know, 15 and 16 year olds who might not be smoking cigarettes to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think that's really the question, whether Jules, uh, sort of self-aggrandizement, uh, that they're, they're, they're a health product almost that they are, are trying to convert people off of these dangerous uh, carcinogenic cigarettes uh, needs to be questioned against their clear marketing intent, which was uh, to, to put these things in the hands of children. Taking all that into account, we have dangerous products on the market where people know that they're dangerous. For example, cigarettes. We have other dangerous products on the market for example, motor cars, leaving aside the issue of people under 18 getting hold of them, isn't it just natural freedom that people should be entitled to take whatever risks they see fit with their lives? And if they like these products, what does it matter? Well, uh, there are actual laws against some of the things that Jewel has been accused of doing. Uh, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the marketing 
of addictive products to children and teens. So yeah, yeah, but, uh, I understand we, that. But leave aside, leave aside the, leave aside the, the market. Okay, but, but, for, but for, for example, for example, people, but you're saying people have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, the 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 U.S. government uh, uh, has has determined that people under a certain age, uh, it's less about their freedom of choice and more about. Uh, uh, protecting them from addictive products. And mm-hmm. so that's a balance that we make in society. And uh, we, we say, look, we're not going to completely ban these products, but we are going to talk about uh, uh, preventing the marketing of them to people who might not know the risks fully or might not fully comprehend the risk. And uh, Juul, it seems, has, has done that in many ways. And, and so I think that's really the question. The question is not uh, do you have the personal freedoms to go ahead and, and uh, uh, you know, use a product that you might know is uh, cancerous or, or carcinogenic or, or, or harmful to you in some way? Uh, the, the, the question is, 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 you know, is this product following the, the dictates that we have uh, figured out under the Family Smoking Prevention and Control Act and other uh, laws that have uh, uh, prevented uh, the product, and of course, you know, in the United States, it's it's been a little looser. But in in the UK, there's there's proposed legislation to make uh, e-cigarettes only available by prescription, and of mm-hmm. course, that would uh, match sort of Jules' whole 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 argument, right? Which is this is about conversion. This is about getting people off of cigarettes. Well, okay, one way to do that is to make them available by prescription, so that only people who had a smoking addiction are are going to be able to get them. Okay. So, okay. And, and you can understand that. But that's that's a, that's a very authoritarian way of doing things. And if you contra- contrast it with the growing movement now, and I've recently noticed that you can go from Alaska uh, to the Mexican border without ever leaving a jurisdiction where marijuana has been legalized, hmm. there's no question that there are some health uh, risks associated with smoking marijuana, but those states and Canada and uh, increasingly more and more states have come to the conclusion that risk or no risk, people's liberty is more important than the state's duty to force them to do the right thing. Surely the same is true for vaping. Well, uh, I, I think many of the similar rules apply. I mean, uh, certainly... Uh, every state is different. Legalization of marijuana has, has sort of just come online in the last few years, mm-hmm. but there are pretty strong standards against marketing to children. And, uh, you see that in the packaging, uh, and in, you know, making things look like Hershey bars and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that they've tried to prevent. So it, it's a similar, I, I don't have a problem with this sort of libertarian argument that uh, if, if, if you want to take that risk of using whatever substance, then, then that's your, you know, your, it, it's your own body and it's your own choice. But uh, it, it's where it, it dips into uh, certain things that we as a society have decided are important, like uh, making sure that people who, uh, you know, aren't as developed or aren't as mature to, to know and understand these risks, uh, are 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 not that, being that's true. That's true. But you, you can't, targeted. David, David, you can't legislate for the whole of a society on the basis of what a nine-year-old might do. Nobody is. I I I don't, I don't think I've ever said that. I mean, I think what I've said 
is that uh, the, the, the specific uh, uh, policies that have been put forward and, and, and for many years and have not been taken down uh, around uh, uh, trying to prevent direct targeting at a nine-year-old uh, for this kind of product is, is the things where it gets wary. And, and what gets more wary actually, and what actually I'm more interested in with respect to this piece Mm -hmm. is the monopolization of this market so quickly, which it has a sort of a larger, uh, kind of dynamic. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was going to get get onto. That's what I was going to get onto. How the hell did, and, and, the, the figures are enormous. Joule has been valued in terms of a, a takeover of uh, an investment by the, the company that owns Marlboro Cigarettes. They're, they're judging that Joule is worth more than the Ford Motor Company. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. And so, I mean, I think this is a function of uh, sort of this age of monopoly that we're living in right now in America. How did that happen? How did it go from us having uh, one of these cheaply set up vape shops on every corner in a low rent street to one company dominating the market so so completely? How did that happen? Well, uh, I would say that in this case, uh, the the various branding and the way in which they were able to uh, you know find a niche among young people uh, played a big role in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a situation where they found the right market and then just sort of by word of mouth or what have you or the ability to, to channel through social media, uh, it became the dominant figure. I mean, jeweling is a verb, right? It, it's, it means the same as vaping. Yeah, you know that Google hit it big when Google became a verb right. and, and dueling has, seems to, right. at least among some and, sections of society, and, become a verb as well. And, you know, in the United States, if you go back to the late 19th century, we had sort of standards in place to make sure that uh, companies did not get to such a size or such a, a, a large dominant position in a sector that they could have market power and use anti-competitive behavior. And, and we essentially don't uh, uh, enforce any of that anymore in the United States. And so Juul was allowed to have this sort of unrestrained growth where they knocked down pretty much every other uh, competitor. And there was no sort of attempt to investigate this behavior. And now Altria comes in, they, they, they put a deal together. It says that Juul devices and, and, and pods will be on the shelf next to Marlboro cigarettes. It says that Juul ads can go on the packages of Marlboro cigarettes. Mm. Uh, it says that they will share a common sales force to push these products into the marketplace. And so now where uh, e-cigarettes were built up as a competitor uh, to the traditional big tobacco – They've now been subsumed by big tobacco and it's a function and, and, and that 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 sort of merger or at least uh, stake that Altria took in Juul has not really been investigated in any way by the antitrust authorities. And, and so uh, that's kind of how uh, sort of our laissez faire uh, 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 attitude toward uh, the, the concentrations of corporate power has gone. Uh, in the last, I'd say, 40 years. 
And, uh, you know, e-cigarettes is just such a great test case example because it literally did not exist as a market uh, a decade ago. And now it's in the hands of one competitor. It just shows you the dynamic and the trends of how, uh, you know, U.S. uh, corporate America works. But the one thing I'm thinking, David, is that you're mixing up a moral disapproval of smoking with you and you write for generally leftist uh, leftist outlets like the intercept and you have a moral disapproval of capitalism and a moral disapproval of cigarettes and these two come together to become your ultimate hate figure there is for example tesla who who are making electric cars ford and nissan are moving into this space as well and it may well be the case that Tesla is the scout, and you can always recognize the scouts because they're the ones who have the arrows sticking out of their backs. Uh, they they find the path, and uh, maybe Nissan and Ford will continue to be the big car makers. They just won't be uh, selling gas guzzlers anymore. That's the way the market goes. Is there anything really wrong with that? If I was, uh, if I spotted this trend in toy building blocks, I would have written pretty much the exact same story. Uh, I, I really uh, am agnostic on what exact product we're talking about here. Uh, I, I am interested in the trend itself. And the trend is certainly not limited to the cigarette market, to the auto market, or to any other market you could come up with. We have seen a concentration of corporate power uh, in, in industry after industry, and this has tremendous effects, not just on price, on consumer prices, mm-hmm. but on inequality, on the ability of workers and innovators to break into markets, the ability of entrepreneurs to have new ideas and, 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 and push their talents and their liberties forward. Uh, uh, this is a huge problem. It's a problem of quality, uh, because if you're the only company that's out there, why do you have any incentive to improve the quality of your product? Uh, this, this is a, a national major problem. This is, this is the, the question and challenge of our time in my view. And it has nothing to do with uh, the particular market that I found here that happened to be cigarettes. It, it, it's just the fact that this market didn't exist and it immediately trended to monopoly that interested me, not, not the uh, particular uh, uh, you know, uh, nature of the product or, or any kind of moral opprobrium or disopprobrium. I'm personally kind of agnostic. I've never smoked cigarettes myself, but mm-hmm. you know, more power to you. Um, the, that, that's what I was interested in capturing in this piece. And, uh, I, I think it's certainly worthy of study and it's worthy of study, uh, regardless of where you sit on, uh, the ideological spectrum. I mean, uh, without competition, there is no capitalism, uh, capitalism, competition go together very directly. And if we're in a place where competition has been swallowed up, because we have this handful of giants that uh, not only uh, push forward economic power, but then political power, uh, then then that should be dangerous to you, whether you're a conservative or a liberal or whatever. So then one, one last question. How long do you think it'll be before the Marlboro Cigarette Company or maybe British American Tobacco are completely in charge of the cannabis market? Well, that, uh, that's a, that's a very good question. You know, I mean, 
we're we're certainly seeing some consolidations in the cannabis market right now. Uh, there are uh, large organizations uh, in the retail side, like MedMen. There are large uh, organizations on on the grower side, and uh, I'll bet you dollar for dollar that there are discussions being had in the executive boardrooms of Altria or British American Tobacco or, or R.J. Reynolds Lorillard uh, to say how how do we get in? How do we uh, get a get a piece of this action? Just like Altria did with Juul, uh, it, it's uh, something really to to watch. And if we had competent antitrust authorities, uh, they they would be very watchful of that uh, dynamic as well, and maybe even step in to prevent it. David Dayton, contributing writer at the Intercept, also shortly to become the executive editor of the American Prospect. Thank you very much for talking to me. All right, thank you, William. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow David Dayan at DDayan. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a topic or a guest for a future show. Thanks to everyone who's signed up as patrons so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as those people who've already signed up and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's April 8th, I'll be talking to reporter and editor Rob Bluey of the Heritage Foundation and asking him whether he holds politicians to consistent standards. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>